Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I interview Michaela Haas. Michaela is the author of a book called Bouncing Forward, Transforming Bad Breaks into Breakthroughs. She takes a cutting edge look at how we find healing and resilience after major setbacks and shares the stories of people who have emerged from traumatic hardships stronger, wiser, and even more compassionate. She discusses the term post-traumatic growth and some of the proven methods that we can use to survive and thrive in the face of challenges. Michaela draws upon powerful storytelling, psychology, and 20 years of Buddhist practice to reshape the way we think of crisis. Before we hear Michaela's story, this podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio. Apple's Pick is one of the 10 best apps of the year. It's a great way to kickstart your own meditation practice. You can download it in the App Store. If you have questions or suggestions for our podcast or app, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. Now, Here's Michaela. Michaela, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. So I loved your book, Bouncing Forward. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And the the subtitle uh, of the book is Transforming Bad Breaks into Breakthroughs. And this just stirred up so much for me because so much of your work is about resilience and forgiveness. And you use this term post-traumatic growth versus post-traumatic stress, for example. Yes. And I really want to help our, our listeners understand you know, why resilience is so important and why some of us fall apart while others of us um, thrive based on your stories. Exactly. That's really the question that has intrigued me for a very, very long time. And first of, you know, as a journalist, I meet a lot of people who've been through traumatic experiences. And it, I always wondered why some people were able to deal with it better or heal from it and even thrive while others fell apart. So this question became deeply personal when I got severely ill in my 20s. And I was actually bedridden for about eight months. And it was pretty scary because the doctors didn't know what was wrong with me and if I would ever get better. And I was not resilient and I did fall apart. And so this really sparked the personal part of the journey to see, well, other people have been through things much worse than what I've experienced. So are there things I can learn to become more resilient? Are there things that that I can use to nourish myself when I'm down. And the the book Bouncing Forward is really the result of this because I got to speak to people I admire, like Maya Angelou, uh, who actually gave the book its title. She talks about bouncing forward, going beyond what the naysayers said. Or people like Temple Grandin, the autistic pioneer, or a paralyzed surfer called Chessie Biller. And I asked them all the same questions. What helped you? How did you make this through? And in the course of this research, I came across this amazing new science of post-traumatic growth. And of course, everybody has heard of post-traumatic stress. 
But much to my surprise, I learned that there's really a lot of information now about how we can not only heal from traumatic experiences and challenges, but even use them to grow. And so this is what uh, really fascinates me. And this is why I wrote Bouncing Forward to share this research with anybody who uh, experiences challenges in life and who doesn't, yes. right? And who doesn't. I think you, you have a statistic in your book that 89% of us experience at least, at least one traumatic event in our life. And is there, with post-traumatic growth, is there sort of a depth of experience or negative experience that you have that makes it almost impossible to come back? Or in your research, have you found any differences between how bad an experience actually is and how easy or hard it is to come back? I think one of the things I found most surprising is that is it is not what happens to us that determines how severe a trauma is. I've met people who've been, I've, I've interviewed, there's a chapter about my friend Coco Schumann who was in Auschwitz. Um, Maya Angelou was abused and raped as an eight-year-old. So I've come to understand that there is nothing that we cannot heal from. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that it doesn't leave scars. Uh, and actually what determines if we can heal from a trauma isn't so much what happens to us, but how much support we get, how much in charge we feel, how much control we can take of a situation, how safe we feel, how much we lost, and very, very much our mindset. Because I'm I've been a practicing Buddhist for more than 20 years now. And what actually got me into Buddhism was my encounters with Tibetan refugees in Asia. And they've had traumatic life stories. They've often witnessed their family members being killed or tortured, or they've been in prison, or they've been tortured. And even when some psychologists were surprised to find that only one of 900 refugees they interviewed uh, was diagnosed with PTSD, and all the others had found ways through their practice of compassion and meditation and mindfulness to work through their pain and work through their suffering. And this is where I think this idea of post-traumatic growth is so helpful because as soon as we can find any purpose in what we go through, then we actually have a much, much better chance of healing from it. And, and this is something that no matter what our specific trauma is, you know, Pema Children said the fundamental question is not if we encounter suffering because we all do, but how we work with suffering so that it leads to awakening the heart and going beyond the habitual views and actions that perpetuate suffering. So this is this is really the core of, of bouncing forward. Yeah. yeah, it's a really, it's a complicated idea. I mean, it seems simple on the one hand and complicated on the other, because looking back at your story, so you're, you know, bedridden with an undetectable illness at the time for eight months and you're, you're struggling with that. Is it because you didn't have the tools yet to become more um, resilient or to accept this as an opportunity? I mean, is there any way to, while we're inside the opportunity, to look at the gift of that without getting too sort of, you know, woo-woo about that? Because these experiences are horrible. I've met a few people who were able to do it on the spot, but I think 
they're rare. <laughs> Most people need at least a few years or several years um, to, you know, with some distance to look back and, and see it as a growing experience. And I think one of the worst things you can say to somebody who's who's in the midst of it, things like, oh, it's going to get better or who knows what it's good for. People hate these these phrases. And that's really not what post-traumatic growth means. And actually, the only way we can grow is to, to allow the struggle. But one thing I can say that helped me and that I, I think helps anybody who's going through a tough time is mindfulness meditation. Because I think that we have no choice but to learn to stay present. And running away, as, as tempting as it is, or drinking the pain away, or taking painkillers, or whatever our particular style is of avoiding it, it just never works. None of these methods work. So mindfulness meditation is now used so widely in the army, in businesses, in trauma therapy. And I found it crucial. Now, I I had already started meditating before I became ill, but I had to realize that I was more like a good weather uh, meditator. <laughs> I used it to make myself feel good. And I had to learn to go deeper with it and to stay present even when the going gets tough, even when there is physical pain, even when there is emotional pain, to stay present. And Rushi Bernie Glassman was also uh, in Bouncing Forward. He said, well, if you think about it, we're always in the present moment anyway. We can't be anywhere else. <laughs> it's just a, a matter of allowing ourselves to actually be there and be present with whatever happens. Of course, it's a practice I'll, I'll work on for the rest of my life. Yeah, I think we all will. And I think a lot of people who haven't experienced trauma, let's say, yet in their lives, don't really understand that these practices that you cultivate pre-trauma are going to be important for anything that you deal with in life? And how do we, you know, how do you inspire people to really understand that these practices will be your sort of stalwart, if you will, for getting through things? Yes, there is, um, obviously you wanna practice meditation or other resources for resilience. Ideally, we practice them when when the sun is shining so that we have them at our disposal when the going gets tough. And um, one of the, the things I find most encouraging is that actually in the mindfulness tradition that I trained in, you know, we can use happiness and pain to transform ourselves, to open our heart, to become more compassionate rather than closing down, to sharing what's really going on. And so it, it doesn't, we don't have to wait for a trauma to start, but it's useful to, to prepare ourselves because most of us not only experience one trauma in life, but five to six actually. And it's not just the war in Iraq that can be traumatic, but a divorce can be traumatic, an illness can be traumatic, a surgery, a car crash, things that happen to pretty much all of us. And I think if it was up to me, resilience would be taught in schools. Mindfulness meditation would be taught in schools because if, if kids learn about it, if they apply it, they grow up so much stronger because resilience is like a muscle. If we work at it, if we train in it, then we become stronger and we become more resilient. And the, the earlier we start or the if we have a daily practice, the more useful it will be to us when we do encounter a severe challenge or crisis. 
And what, you know, when you were actually interviewing all of the people in your book who have these stories, were they honest about like establishing a practice after they had their post-traumatic or they had their trauma situation? Or did many of them already have all the skills and they were telling you their story or was part of it, you know, how did, how did they develop these tools after the fact? So this is really one of the five main areas of post-traumatic growth is a deepening of spirituality. And there are um, many people, I would say most of the people in the book who only developed a practice after they lived through a trauma, like Rhonda Cornham, for instance, she's an army surgeon who actually started the resilience program for the U.S. Army. And she did so after she was captured in the first Iraq war. And, you know, she's a doctor, she's uh, an army surgeon, kind of very focused on the uh, on this life here, what we can see and touch. And when she was captured after a helicopter crash, she had like a near-death experience. And so for the first time, she thought, oh, maybe there's something else beyond what I can see and touch. And so because she knew, you know, all the science about how helpful mindfulness meditation is, and because mindfulness meditation is now part of the resilience training in the army, she said, well, I have to try that out. And she's now an avid meditator, and she practices meditation every day because she found it so healing and so useful. Or uh, there's a chapter about my friend Alain, who was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And he already was a Buddhist, and he had a bit of a practice, but he called himself a book Buddhist, meaning he was interested in, in Buddhism, but wasn't really taking it seriously. And, you know, we all think impermanence happens to other people, but <laughs> somehow not to us. So after the diagnosis, he was only given six months to live, and he really started to practice. He, he almost practiced day and night, and he... Um, you know, he, he realized how, how, what a growth process that was for him. And actually, instead of passing away after six months, like the doctor said he would, he's still with us and he is um, alive and thriving. And for him, the cancer brought home all the many, many things he needed to change in himself and in his life. So do you, do you see that deep introspection and forgiveness are also a part of these stories. And when you look at the army sergeant that you were talking about and she was captured and she was raped, I mean, she must have had to, in order to move on, she must have had to forgive her captors. Is reducing or relieving your anger and forgiving a big part of resilience? I think it is, but it's easier said than done. I've heard people be forgiving and thought, wow, you know, that's amazing that they have the capacity to forgive. I've talked about this with a lot of people, and the, one of the chapters in my book is about Cindy Lamb, one of the co-founders of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And a lot of people know her story uh, because it made a lot of headlines back then. She was hit head on by a drunk driver. Her little girl was the youngest quadriplegic in the history. And um, she had to take care of her daughter while being severely injured herself. And she hated that drunk driver. And she hated him 
for 23 years. She hated him. And she's, she has a strong Christian belief. And she always knew that she should forgive him. And she tried to forgive him. But she simply couldn't. And it took her all these decades of coming to a point where she finally, she met with him and she understood that he too was suffering he was suffering from alcoholism. He was suffering from trauma, too. And it was after all this time that she could finally sit down with him and tell him, I forgive you. And she describes that so movingly. She said, it was like tons of weight falling off my shoulder. He thought I did it for him, but really, it changed my life the most. But I want to stress that, you know... It takes time, and sometimes the pressure we put on ourselves to forgive or to move on is actually not helpful because it's a process, and putting more stress on us to, you know, get on with it, it doesn't work. We, we need to take the time we need to take. And interestingly, Cindy lives very, very close to the Amish uh, community where the school shooting happened, and if you remember, they forgave the shooter and his family immediately, they invited the mom of the shooter to their services and brought her into their circle. And I was so touched by that, but also I thought this is kind of superhuman. And I realized that just as with resilience or with mindfulness, forgiveness too is a practice. And the only way the Amish could forgive the shooter who had brought so much suffering over their community so quickly is because they were already practicing forgiveness and compassion every day in their lives. And I think um, I had to learn this that, you know, sometimes we expect from ourselves a certain behavior or we read about what other people do. And I had to learn that my own path is different and every individual's path is different. And we have our own timelines. There are all these books you can buy about how long it should take you to heal from something or to get over your grief or to find forgiveness. And I would just like to throw out all these timelines because there is no timeline for each individual person. It, it takes time to to, to get to that place where we can really heal and where we can truly forgive. But I would say that I consider it essential and also taking responsibility and forgiving ourselves for, for the suffering we have caused ourselves and others. What do you see in common then among all of the people that you've interviewed? Because it sounds like there, this is, you know, it's a practice and there are a lot of components to it. There's a spiritual component, there's forgiveness, there's mindfulness, meditation. There are so many different practices that will help us with this. But what is it? There is one thing that they all have in common, and that is they did not give up. They, Coco did not give up when he was in Auschwitz. Rhonda did not give up when she was in that bunker in Iraq. Cindy did not give up when she had to take care of her little girl after her husband left her because she couldn't, he couldn't handle the suffering. Um, Chessie didn't give up after he was paralyzed by a wave and he's back on a surfboard all the time. He's back in the ocean despite being paralyzed from the shoulder down. So not giving up. That's, um, that I think that they all have in common and they were not afraid to ask for help. They were not afraid to admit when they were despondent. They were not afraid to admit their weaknesses. And uh, that's another thing I learned is that sometimes we think resilient people are the people who don't need anybody. They're strong. You know, they, 
pull yourself up by the bootstraps, right? We say that all the time, or some people say it. But um, I've learned, and there are lots of studies now that confirm this, really nobody does it alone. And the people who think they should be able to do it alone are the ones who are most at risk for PTSD, because we need others uh, when when we're down. And we need to be able to to reach out and not be afraid to share what's really going on. Because in our culture, you know, when somebody asks you, how are you? It's kind of expected that you say, oh, great, you know, I'm doing great. And even if that's not the truth. And to be able to have that courage to say, you know, I'm not great today. I'm not doing well. Um, can I share what's going on? That is so, so important. And that was, I really see a big culture change. Even in the army, they're now teaching the soldiers to to talk about their difficulties, to admit their weaknesses, because this is actually a sign of strength when you can show your vulnerability. And I think this is a real change we're seeing that's helpful for dealing with challenges. Yeah, I like what you're saying very much about how important it is to be more self-aware because, and that's what mindfulness teaches us, right? And so if we know where we need to practice to be more resilient, we know if we know we're one of the two thirds of the people that aren't naturally resilient, then it becomes a practice that we want to become strong. Exactly. And also, I think, you know, mindfulness practice, the reason why it's so successful in strengthening resilience, I think has to do with getting to know ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And so often I find people are good at taking care of others and we're not so good at taking care of ourselves. And self-care, self-compassion, loving kindness, not only for others, but also for ourselves, I think is crucial. And then another interesting thing, because you asked me what all the people I'm bouncing forward have in common, and actually one thing they all have in common is that the trauma they went through really changed their lives in terms of they, all of them, have dedicated their lives to helping others now. All of them have founded nonprofits or the personal work they do or the education they, they bring to the table Whatever lessons they learned from their challenge, they're using that to help others. And that has actually proven to be one of the most important things for people to find a purpose in life. So while a traumatic event might decrease our happiness, but it might increase the purpose we see in life. There's no point, there's no sense in losing your little child to a drunk driver or being captured in Iraq, but the lessons they learned from that experience, there is value in that. And the people are willing to share that. This is a huge asset, I would say. And this is something that has been proven to help post-traumatic growth is if we know others who have lived through tough experiences and who are willing to tell us how they've worked through it and how we can learn from them. You, you, you've hit on a couple of really key issues that generally are assigned to making us happier as well as more resilient, which is having a community around you and finding a really meaningful purpose in your life. So I'm curious, you know, if, if everyone in your book did kind of tap into what their purpose was in life and 
how long does that take? I mean, because one of the things that you talk about is, you know, pain, you know, pain cracks you open and then yes. all of this sort of flood of things that happen after that. And it's, you know, maybe some predictable, some not predictable, but what is that sort of process in finding your purpose after you've, you've been cracked open by horrendous pain or a traumatic event? That's a great question. And, you know, the question, how long does it take, is the question I get asked the most often. What's the recipe and how long does it take? <laughs> so I do have a recipe and all the people I've spoken with, they do have recipes, but it's their individual recipes. But finding a purpose is the one thing that they, they've all, I would say they have all found that through the challenges they've been put through. Like Jesse Bellower, for instance, the surfer who was paralyzed, he now takes other handicapped kids and adults surfing. And it's about way more than surfing. It's about building self-confidence. It's about building community, as we've mentioned. And I think the process is, unfortunately, the first step of the recipe for all of them was to allow the struggle. And that's, again, something... That's the hardest thing, right? Allow the struggle and don't fight it. It's the hardest thing. But of course, we can't do that by ourselves. So while we allow the struggle, we also need to invite positivity in. We need to invite in things and activities and people who nourish us, who, who give us strength. Taking responsibility is another big thing. I believe that we cannot really heal from a situation unless we've acknowledged that we're our part in it, our responsibility for it. And that doesn't mean like we're respons responsible for anything that happens, but we are responsible for how we respond to it. And this, this mindset, this growth mindset is really, really, really important because a trauma always happens when we feel helpless. Helplessness is a huge factor in any trauma. Something happens, we have no control over it. So regaining any amount of control is extremely essential. Like Rhonda Corner, when she was in that bunker, she had no control over her movements, over what she ate, her arms were broken, she couldn't even feed herself. So the only way she could deal with it was by taking control of her mind. She started to learn vocabulary of her captors. She knew she had to keep her mind focused to make it through it. And I've heard this even from Auschwitz survivors in Auschwitz, where again, any level of outer control was taken away from them. Some of them would get up early in the morning for their prayers, because that was one small step for taking control of their situation, at least, you know, in their mind, at least mentally, they could strengthen their, their mindset. And any amount of control we can, we can take, that will bring back our feeling that we're not just victims, but we can um, work through a situation. Well, this is so insightful. Thank you so much. I'm just gonna ask you one last question and that is, do you have a favorite inspirational quote that really says it all? <laughs> I always come back to Maya Angelou because I was so grateful I got to speak with her. And she says, nothing will work unless you do. And whenever I wanna 
give up, whenever things get too hard, I think of her and I think nothing will work unless you do. <laughs> and, you know, she's been through so much in her life. She's experienced uh, so much violence and racism. And if she could have this attitude and if she could live her life uh, from that place of love and not giving up, um, then, you know, what's my excuse? That is such a great quote. That's one that's going up on my wall. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. I have it up. <laughs> Thank you so much. This has been really so great. I'm so appreciative. Thank you for having me. I really appreciated your questions. Thanks so much to Michaela for her insights and wisdom. You can get more information at MichaelaHaas.com and her book is sold at all major booksellers. Once again, if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio App in the App Store. See you next week.